Please take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy 7 this morning. There are Bibles available to you if you didn't bring one. They are under the chair in front of you or perhaps under the chair you're sitting on. And today's passage is on page 142 if you'd like to follow along there. Or I should say it begins there and uh, we'll be traversing a good number of chapters here. But uh, we'll get you started on page 142 today. So this summer we're taking just about six or seven weeks, um, spread out a little bit with a few interruptions here and there, but uh, to study a book of the Old Testament called Deuteronomy, which is one of the uh, really hinge books of the Old Testament. So everything before it leads up to Deuteronomy, and everything after it really needs to be read in light of what Deuteronomy tells us and how it uh, instructs us to live and so forth. Uh, The instruction in Deuteronomy is primarily in three speeches. We're in uh, essentially the end of the first main speech here in Deuteronomy. And the instruction in Deuteronomy is essentially reshaping the covenant or reiterating the covenant that God made with his people Israel at the mount called Sinai, which is described back in Exodus chapter 19. And uh, it's kind of taking the laws that God gave Israel there at, um, uh, at Mount Sinai and telling them how to live them out after they go into the land that God has promised them, going back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis. So it's the same covenant that he's giving them, the same law essentially, but putting it into a new context for a new situation. So I'll be reading today chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 6 through 11. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. Please follow along as I read aloud. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. In a small but beautiful mountainous town in southern Virginia on a summer day nearly 80 years ago, dozens of families sat next to their radios. Surely many of those families were praying, some were crying, few were eating or even moving. They were listening to news reports of what was happening on the other side of the world on a beach in France, trying to make sense of what was happening there on one of the most important days of World War II. This was June 6, 1944, which we know as D-Day. And in Bedford, Virginia, families knew that their sons, their brothers, their husbands or boyfriends, their schoolmates, were going to be some of the first ones to charge onto Omaha Beach to push back the Germans. That day, 34 men from this small town, about 3,000 people in this town, 34 of them from Bedford, known as the Bedford Boys, moved onto the beach 
and within a couple of minutes, 19 of them were dead, having hardly made a move off of their boats. Within a few days of battle, another three of them were dead. What compelled them? So I just want you to pause, take that nugget of information, this factual situation that perhaps you can picture in your heads. What would compel 34 guys from one small town who had been raised together, gone to school together, trained together for years, lived together for years, done enactments of what was going to happen over and over and over again for months at this point, what compelled them for that moment to get off their boats and go into that battle, knowing the position that the Germans had, the weapons that the Germans had, and so on? What would compel them to, do, to move on to Omaha Beach at that moment? I would argue it was knowing who they were. It was knowing we are Bedford boys. We are Virginians. And certainly, highest of all, we are Americans. So we are going to go into this moment ready. What I'm saying is that having a clear sense of who you are compels you to live in a certain way. Having a sense of who you are compels you to live in a certain way. Today's passage, Deuteronomy 5-11, through tells you who we are as the people of God. In other words, if you are a Christian, you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as your only Savior, you've repented of your sins, you believe that only Jesus can save you from your sins, you could never actually repay God in some way, you could never earn forgiveness in some way by what you live. If that's what you believe, the Bible calls you part of the people of God. And what we as the people of God are told in this section, the truth, the message of this passage, is that God has made you His treasured possession. God has made you His treasured possession. And so the response to that truth is to be careful to walk in all His ways. And I want to show you from the text briefly, from the beginning of chapter 5 and from the end of chapter 11, a phrase that just showed up in the text I just read that tells you why I think that's the response. The passage I read tells you the truth, that we are God's chosen people, we are God's treasured possession is the language there in verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6. And the response is interspersed throughout these several chapters that we're studying together today. So look at chapter 5, verse 1. So we'll be flipping back a couple pages from where we were a moment ago. And see, in chapter 5, verse 1, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So I'm arguing that the response to this truth that you are God's treasured possession because God has made you His treasured possession is to be careful to walk in His ways. Flip back now several pages to chapter 11, or I guess flip forward several pages to chapter 11, verse 32. So this is the very end. We just looked at the first bookend of our passage, and now we're going to look at the other bookend of our passage, chapter 11, verse 32, where Moses is still speaking. He says, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you today. So there's several repetitions there. The word today, for one, in chapter 5, verse 1, to hear 11.32. But also especially this phrase, you shall be careful to do. You shall be careful, and careful to do what? To walk in His ways. And that phrase shows up six or seven times in this selection of, of uh, 
chapters today, this, this particular speech. So this is the end of the first section of Deuteronomy. First of three sections, 1 through 11, 12 through 26. We're going to take that and divide it into two parts rather than preaching that huge chunk next week. We'll do it in two weeks. And then 27 through 34 is essentially the third section of this book. My inclination when I studied this passage, alongside of our interns this week, was to want to jump to the how question. Okay, so how do I walk in God's ways? But we have good interns. They corrected me. They said, this isn't about the how. This is about the why. It wasn't just them. I have to take a little bit of credit for myself, but they they helped me stay on course, right? Okay? So I love our interns and their friends. So I will say... uh, Instead of jumping to the how question, this passage answers the why question. Why should we walk in God's ways? Why should we be so careful to walk in God's ways if he's made us his treasured possession? And I believe this passage gives us three answers. Three reasons we should be careful to walk in God's ways. So let me give you the first one. We should be careful to walk in God's ways because of his past blessings. We should be careful to walk in God's ways because of his past blessings. What are those blessings specifically? Let me give you four answers to that question. See, I know you're just asking these questions are at the top of your head, and I'm just trying to give you the answers. So there's four answers here. Why should we be careful to walk in God's ways? Because of his past blessings. What are those blessings? Here's four. I'm going to give give them to you fast, and then I'll give them to you slow. All right? So the, the fast way is because of his choice, because of his covenant, because of his deliverance, and because of his patience. Those are the four reasons, or those are the four blessings, I should say. God's past blessings. The first one is his choice. And this is in the passage we just read in chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. Perhaps you noticed this language here, that the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. But did you notice in verse 7 the reason he did not choose you? Look at verse 7 there. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. In other words, it's not because you're this super powerful nation that makes all the other nations tremble when they see you coming. Now that's a joke. Israel was small. He even says in, here in verse 7, uh, I believe it's in, actually in chapter uh, 9, you're, you're the smallest of, of the nations around here. Uh, back in chapter 9, I, I believe that's where that's at. So it's not because of your might. Verse 8 tells you why the Lord has chosen you. Look there again. But it is because the Lord loves you. Hold on. Why does the Lord love you? Verse 8 tells you because He loves you. Does that help you out? That should help you out. So why does He love you? Because He loves you. And He loves you and He loves you and He loves you because He loves you. There's the answer there. So if you're here and you're not a Christian... Let me just pause and say thank you for coming. We are thrilled you're here. We want you to come back again. If you have any questions about our worship service, just catch the person sitting near you and ask them, and they will be happy to give you a good answer. If you are here and you're not a Christian, I ask you, do you even have a category in your head for God loving you, not because of who you are or what you've done or how good-looking you are, but simply because of His love? Can you imagine someone loving you Not because of what you can give them, but because of his love for you. That's what God has done for us here because of the gospel of Jesus. God loves us freely in the gospel of Christ. Not because of 
something that makes us attractive, but simply because of his love. So it's not because of your might. It is because of his love. Why else did he choose us? Chapter 9, verse 4 says, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out, these enemies, before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. So, why did the Lord choose you? Not because of His might, because of His love. Here in chapter 9, not because of your righteousness, but look at verse 5, the second half of it. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that He may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So did God choose Israel because they were the holiest people in the world? Far from it. He chose them because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he was proving himself to be true to his own word. And that should really encourage you. That God's going to keep his promise to you, even if it seems unlikely, even if humanly speaking it seems unreasonable. He's going to keep his promise. And he was doing that through the people of Israel. And maybe you're looking at this passage and you might have this objection. Isn't this passage about Israel not about us Christians. Like This isn't talking about God choosing us for salvation. It's about God choosing Israel to use them as His chosen people. And my response to that would be, no matter how you draw your line there, however crooked that line may be, this passage is true of us as Christians as well as it was for Israel. And I believe I have good theological grounds for saying that and good like scriptural grounds for saying that. Like I think I can make a good argument theologically, but I can also just show you this passage. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Let me just read it and listen for the words that show up in this passage here that I think uh, the Bible intends for us to make this connection. So 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You get that from chapter 7, verse 6 so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness, as God called Israel out of Egypt, God calls us out of darkness, into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Interestingly, Moses' logic in Deuteronomy 7 is the same as Peter's reasoning in 1 Peter 2. So because of who you are, you live a certain way. That's Moses' thinking. That's his reasoning. Here's Peter's reasoning. Because of who you are, live a certain way. The very next two verses, after what I just read a second ago, says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may... Speak against so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, again, you may have sharp lines drawn in your mind about who Israel is and who the church is, and you may want to keep them a mile apart, but we can't argue that the New Testament authors were taking the language of Deuteronomy and applying it to the church and saying the way that God worked in choosing Israel is the same way that He works in choosing Christians for salvation. Of course, salvation is through Christ. It's through faith in Christ. Salvation is always through Christ. 
It's through the Messiah. That's who Old Testament Israel was looking forward to. They were like, we need someone to save us. It's someone coming later. We'll call him Messiah. The Greek word for that is Christ. Old Testament Israel was looking forward to the cross, even though they didn't know it was going to be on a Roman cross. They were looking forward to the moment of salvation, we could say. We are looking back to the same event that they were looking forward to. We look back and we have more information. We have more details. We know his name is Jesus. We know he died on a Roman cross. Unjustly, but in the perfect plan of God. And so, what this passage is telling us is that God has shown incredible blessings to us as his people. He showed them to Israel in incredible ways and he shows them to us as Christians in incredible ways as well. The first blessing that we should that should motivate us to walk in his ways is this choice that God has set on us. His, he set his love on us. Secondly, his deliverance. I'm just going to read some passages here. I'm going to tell you what they are. Deuteronomy 5, 6. They're all from this unit, 5 through 11. But if you're taking notes, you can just look at these later or you can just listen carefully. I encourage you to do that as well. Chapter 5, verse 6 says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all these other passages are talking about this same idea of God's deliverance from Egypt. Chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, verse, verse 15, I should say. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And it's on that basis you should obey Him. Chapter 6, verse 12. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. When your kids ask you, basically, why do we have all these rules? Why did God give us this law? Here's the answer you should give in verse 21. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. So God's deliverance is the second past blessing that should cause us to want to walk in his ways. The third past blessing is his patience. Particularly in chapter 9, verses 13 through 21, describing the golden calf incident from the book of Exodus. I believe chapter 32 in Exodus, but here, chapter 9, verse 13. The Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it's a stubborn people. And essentially, he goes on to say, I'm going to destroy them because of their rebellion. And Moses intercedes. He essentially tells the Lord, Please don't do that. Instead, Be patient with them. Be merciful toward your people. And the Lord does. And the people rebel again, and Moses intercedes again, and God is patient again. And this pattern plays itself out multiple times here in chapters 9 and 10. So praise the Lord for his patience as well. If you are in Christ, again, if you have put your hope in Christ alone, the Lord has been patient with you in your many failings. If you are in Christ, the Lord has delivered you from your sin in a way even greater than the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. If you are in Christ, the Lord has made an even better covenant with you, what the Bible calls the new covenant. And if you are in Christ, that is proof that he has chosen you. God took the initiative in saving you and that by itself should cause you to put your hand over your mouth and think, What love, what mercy God has shown to me. Because you never would have pursued 
the Lord on your own. When you meet someone, as I met several people this week, kind of in this category of just total disinterest in what we're doing here right now and what I do for a living, when you meet someone in that category, what's going on there? I would say lots of things are going on there, but one is that it's a reminder that that person is living exactly how I would be living if the Lord had not set his love on me and revealed himself to me in the face of Christ through the word of God. That person who has no concern in the things of God, in the word of God, in the person of Christ, is living the way you would be living if God had not made you alive. And so your response to that person should not be like, how dare you not love Jesus? Your response should be, Lord, please open that person's eyes to behold the glory of Christ in the word of God. If you are in Christ, he has already done that for you. So again, be careful to walk in his ways because of his past blessings. The second reason you should be careful to walk in God's ways, this passage tells us, is because of his future blessings. And this is the last one that talks about the blessings, just so you know. So be careful because of his past blessings. Secondly, be careful to walk in his ways because of his future blessings. What are those future blessings? Chapter 7 tells us it's prosperity. And I would quickly, just in case I forget to say this again, in case I kind of get lost in my notes or anything, I want to tell you most of these future blessings for us as Christians are in the new heavens and the new earth. So if anyone leaves here under the delusion that Eric Brown said, I'm going to get rich if I follow Jesus, go ahead and just remove that from your mind. It's not what I'm saying. If you do get rich, praise the Lord. Be sure to give faithfully to your local church especially if you're a member here. But if you don't, don't blame me. That's all I'm going to say about it. Where is this prosperity that Moses is talking about here in chapter 7? Look in verse 12. And keep looking for these key words of be careful and so forth as we go through these various passages. Chapter 7, verse 12. Because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, The Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. God's people, Israel, you can know that when you go into the promised land, life is going to be amazing if you obey carefully, walk in God's ways. Obey and carefully walk in God's ways. Chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. This sounds like the Garden of Eden. This is a new Eden that God is bringing his people into. A land of brooks of water, of springs and fountains flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron. Like everywhere you look, there are beautiful resources, out of whose hills you can dig copper. You're going to have more than you could ever need. You shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. This was what Israel should have expected when they walked into the promised land, that God was going to keep every one of these words. 
if they obeyed his word. And what this passage will make abundantly clear for us is that it was equally clear to them, if you disobey, the opposite is going to happen. That's why I say that this, passage, that this book is a hinge for the Old Testament, because one of the key words in the Old Testament is exile. One of the key themes, one of the key uh, historical events is exile. Why was Israel exiled? Because they didn't obey. And so they got the opposite. Instead of living in a beautiful land, they're captives in a barren foreign land. I could give other examples here in in these chapters of the prosperity that God gives. I could also allude here to the health and safety that God promises to give His people. In chapter 7, verse 15, the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt which you knew will He inflict on you, but He will lay them on all who hate you. This idea of no sickness sounds wonderful. And it's the idea that the New Testament lays out for us will be our reality in the new heavens and the new earth. There is no crying. There is no more pain. There is no more sickness or death because God is keeping all of His promises. He's going to keep these to us in the new creation. So these blessings, these future blessings that should motivate us to seek to walk with God. Because only those who pursue the glory of God will spend eternity with the Lord, right? That's part of being a Christian is you know that your life is geared toward Him. It's about Him. That's one evidence of the fact that your heart has been made alive is that you care about these things. This happens only if and when we have obedient hearts, which are only possible if chapter 10, verse 16 tells us if you circumcise your heart. And when Israel's people, when God's people Israel heard those words, they should immediately have known this is a metaphor. How should they have known that? Because if you take a knife and you cut into your heart, you're not going to survive it. There's no like extra flab of flesh that you should cut off your heart and it'll make you healthier physically. You're going to die if you do that. So God's people knew, okay, this is a metaphor, so I can't do this myself. That means God's going to have to do it for me. And chapter 5, verse 29, asks this question. A literal translation of chapter 5, verse 29 says, Who will give a heart that they will fear me and keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever? Who will give them that heart? And chapter 30 basically answers that question. God himself will give you this new heart. In Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 32, echo that answer when talking about the new covenant that I mentioned a few minutes ago. So this is parallel, in other words. This idea of a circumcised heart is parallel to what Jesus tells Nicodemus in the book of John chapter 3 when he says, you need to be born again. Mm, That doesn't sound like something humanly possible. So Jesus, what could you possibly be talking about? A spiritual work just like heart circumcision is a spiritual work. This is the idea Paul talks about in Colossians 2.11, about a circumcision made not with hands. If it's not with hands, clearly we're talking about a a spiritual reality, not a physical one. It's a spiritual experience done by God himself, by our faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit makes our hearts alive, gives us this circumcised heart. Something, as you have noticed 
just not even without reading the Bible, just by living life, you've noticed that there's something wrong with the human heart. This passage makes it abundantly clear. So is the rest of the Bible from Genesis 3 on. But you've probably noticed this just by observing like, the way you live, the way your family lives, the way your neighbors live. If you listen to the news at all, there are times you do what you don't want to do. And there are times you don't do what you know you should do. And we're talking about you there, not even talking about your family or your friends or your neighbors, your coworkers. Your public life is pretty good. Like, most of us walking in here, we look nice today. Good job. Your private life, when only your family is around, is a little more embarrassing. Like, oh, I hope no one else heard me say that besides my family, because that's fine, because they see it every day. But our secret life, when no one else is around, when no one else is going to find out about it, that can be a different story. None of us have to be as egregiously wicked as the most terrible scumbags in human history for us to know that we need a new heart. And this passage tells us that only God can give us that new heart. This passage assumes that we are this way, that we are fallen and broken and wicked in our hearts because of sin, because of the fall in the Garden of Eden. And it also assumes that it won't always be this way. The problem is so severe that God himself is the only one who can give us this new heart. This was a future solution for Israel. Like, at some point down the road, I'm going to give you a new heart. For us as New Testament Christians, we can say, if we are in Christ, I've used that phrase a lot, but I'm saying this is not true for every person in humanity. This is true for those who have put their faith in Christ. If you have done that, then this is a present blessing with future expectation as well. Like we know we have a new heart now, but we also know we still have our old nature tagging along for the rest of our lives, kind of tagging along for the ride, but there will, be, there will come a day when we only have the new heart and the old man, the old flesh, will have passed away. So this passage is telling us we should be careful to walk in God's ways for three reasons. You want to try and figure out, try and remember, remind yourself of what they were. The first one is because of his past blessings. The second is because of future blessings. And the third is be careful to walk in his ways because of his judgment on the wicked. So think about how gracious God has been to you in the past. Think about how gracious God will be to you in the future. And think about what it's going to be like for those who rebel and resist God. What is this judgment on the wicked that I'm talking about here? Chapter 7, verse 20. And I mean, again, I, I just probably will need to say this every sermon in Deuteronomy. I'm kind of flipping around in this section because Deuteronomy was kind of repeating himself. Uh, I should say Moses was kind of repeating himself because he's listen, the, he had an audience that was only listening to him. That he was preaching a sermon to them. And so he's kind of repeating himself as I've been doing in this sermon. On purpose, I'll have you know. But nonetheless, if I'm not addressing a particular passage that you have a question about, please feel free to catch me at the door. I probably will be able to give at least an off-the-top-of-my-head type answer about whatever that passage might be from Deuteronomy 5-11. through 11. But this judgment on the wicked that God talks about here that should motivate God's people to love him and to worship him and to glorify him is mentioned in chapter 7, verses 17 through 20, for instance. 
If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. But you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So will the Lord God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send hornets among them until those who are left and hide themselves from you are destroyed. So God will judge his enemies the same way he judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians who were chasing after them in the Red Sea. He will also bring judgment on those who claim to worship God. This is a second category. Those who rebel against God, judgment on them. And for us, we're probably like, yeah, of course. But then secondly, a second category, judgment on those who claim to worship God, but do so with rebellious hearts. And I'm just going to tell you, look at chapter 11, verse 6 later on, and I'll tell you what that's doing there is alluding to, just briefly, a passage that Moses wrote in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 16, a story called Dathan and Abiram, or about, I should say, about two guys named Dathan and Abiram. And here's the gist of that story, and it's one of those stories that kind of blows your mind and just says, man, I cannot even imagine what that would have been like to be there. But here's what happened. Dathan and Abiram were kind of like, Moses, who set you up above us? We don't need you. And Moses basically said, look, let me tell you you know, who's right and who's wrong here. If you die in a normal way, I'm wrong. But if the earth opens up and you fall into it, and then the earth closes up on top of you, I'm right, just so you know. So, let's see. And then, the earth opened up, and Dathan and Abiram and all of their families and all of their tents fell into the hole, and then God closed it up. What do you think you would do if you were standing there at that moment? I think I'd start running. And that's exactly what the passage in number 16 says to do, or says what they did. All the people started screaming, saying, lest we die in the same way, and they all took off running. What is that describing? The judgment of those who say they're worshiping God, but they're actually rebelling against Him. And so this is a warning for us, as people who are Christians, who call ourselves Christians, that we need to walk in God's ways. Because when you stop walking in God's ways, it may be an indication that you never started walking in God's ways all along. Or in the first place, I should say. This passage tells us that the judgment that comes on those who are wicked is a fate worse than death. It's a fate worse than the earth opening up and you falling into it. It's a fate worse than going to prison because of your Christian convictions. It's a fate worse than having family drama because you love Jesus and your family members do not. It's a fate worse than mockery and persecution. And that fate is eternity separated from this good, loving God in a place that the Bible calls hell. And I have heard people say to me, well, see, there doesn't need to be a place called hell because we're all experiencing hell right now. I mean, just look at the news. Just look at the difficulties I'm going through in my own life. This is hell. And I would simply say, no, this is not hell. This is actually as good as it gets for someone who resists God. So please, don't play that game and reinterpret all of human history as saying we are living in hell right now. The Bible describes hell in very clear, vivid ways. And I would simply say that hell is far worse in every way 
compared to what we are experiencing, even in the worst of lives in this world. And that is the fate that we will all experience unless our hope is in Christ alone. And so I would just urge you again, as I've done several times in this sermon and basically every week I've ever preached here, to turn in faith to Christ, to trust in Him alone, not in your performance as a Christian. The surprise of the Bible isn't that God sends sinners to hell. The surprise of the Bible is that He gets, gives anyone open arms and says, come on to me and I will give you rest. The fact that he gives anyone spiritual life, that's the surprise of the Bible. And he does that because people repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus, who is God's only begotten Son. And whoever believes in him will never pay for their own sins because Christ has already paid for them on the cross. The judgment we deserve is the judgment that Jesus absorbed there on Calvary. We deserved it for our rebellion. Jesus did not but he gives us his righteousness freely by our faith in him. And I will simply quickly uh, add here that when we are tempted, we quickly sin most of the time, just like Adam and Eve did. And that deserves the wrath of God, except for our faith in Christ. We fail time after time. When Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness, like Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years being tempted, Jesus perfectly obeyed in that temptation. And one of the ways he resisted the devil's tempting of him was by quoting three verses from this passage. And I'll just tell you, they're Deuteronomy 6.13, Deuteronomy 6.16, and Deuteronomy 8.3. So it's as if while Jesus was in the wilderness, he was meditating on this section of Deuteronomy, chapter 5 through chapter 11. So that when Satan was tempting him, the first thoughts that came to his mind were sections of Deuteronomy. And surely he could have quoted more, and perhaps he did quote more. The New Testament authors give us those three specific verses, though. And so we praise God for Jesus' perfect obedience. He obeyed where Adam and Eve did not. He obeyed where Israel did not. He obeyed where we have not. But by our faith in him, he obeyed in our place. So we praise God for that deliverance from the judgment that we justly deserve. This passage was originally written to people preparing to take possession of the promised land. As Christians, we are preparing to take possession of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. Not on land on the west side of the Jordan River, but on the other side of this life in the new creation. So we all need to be careful to walk in his ways. And that simply means you have a choice to make of whether you're going to follow the Lord, whether you're going to be a disciple of Christ, or whether you're going to turn away in rebellion. The language that Moses uses throughout this sermon in chapters 5 through 11 implies that you have a choice in the matter and the question he lays out for you again and again in this book is literally the wording he uses is are you going to choose life or are you going to choose death? And what would it look like for you to choose life? For one, it would mean being careful to resist worldliness, not cozying up with the world. The very beginning of chapter 11 says don't get engaged in close relationships with the countries around you, because if you do, it'll lead you to following their gods rather than following the Lord himself. That cozying up to the nations is the Old Testament way of saying, do not love the world, in 1 John 2. And I would commend an article on this subject by a theologian named Andy Nacelli that helps us basically kind of search our heart for symptoms. Like when you go to the hospital or you go to the doctor, they're kind of like, what are your symptoms here? And you lay them out, and what this does, this article does, is kind of helps you ask 
a variety of questions about a variety of subjects, about how you think about sex, how you think about what you watch, the way you interact with social media, the, the, the reading material, uh, how you shop and how you use your free time and th- things along these lines that just help you kind of analyze how am I doing in hating the world and loving Christ. So if you like that article, I can send that to you. Uh, just ask me afterwards. To walk in his ways then means resisting, humili- uh, resisting worldliness. It means walking in humility remembering that you are not mighty or righteous from chapter 7, but instead we walk in humility rather than arrogance. It means we love God, we fear God, we obey God, which are all ways that Moses commands us to respond in chapter 10, verse 12, one of the most beautiful verses in Deuteronomy. I won't even take the time to read it, but I encourage you to read Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 later on. To walk in God's ways means to teach your children the Lord's ways. Chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Perhaps the most famous passage in Deuteronomy. And why should I do all this? Why should I walk in God's ways? Because you have a clear sense of who you are. And it compels you to live in a certain way. On August 1st, 1944, the War Department in Washington wrote the following letter to Mrs. Alice Powers in Bedford, Virginia. It is with profound regret that I confirm the recent telegram informing you of the death of your son, Private First Class Jack G. Powers, who was previously reported missing in action on 6 June 1944 in France. I realize the burden of anxiety that has been yours since he was first reported missing in action and deeply regret the sorrow this later report brings you. May the knowledge that he made the supreme sacrifice for his home and country be a source of sustaining comfort. Unfortunately, nearly two dozen families in that town of 3,000 people received similar letters. Visitors to Bedford, Virginia today can visit the National D-Day Memorial and remember that the boys from that town knew who they were and it motivated them to live in a certain way. You, Christian, are God's chosen, treasured possession. You are the people of God. Because you know that, will you walk in his ways? Lord, we are amazed at your grace, the grace you've given to make us your people, and now we pray that you would give us the grace to live in light of it, being careful to walk in all of your ways. Amen.